The wonderful books of multi-award-winning author Paul Jennings have been firm favourites in school classrooms for decades. Master of the twist in the tale, Paul has given us a plethora of enthralling story collections. Unreal to uncanny, spooky, weird and wonderful stories. Nicky Gamble was delighted to welcome him into the reading corner to discuss his illustrious career and untwisted Paul's fascinating and funny autobiography. I wanted to start, actually, first of all, with um, giving my appreciation to you. As somebody who's been a teacher and a teacher of reading, your short stories really made a huge difference to the children I had in my class, mainly boys, it has to be said, who were not as easily motivated to read. And you really did make a huge difference with the stories that you wrote. Now, I know that you've been a teacher yourself, so I wondered if that had enabled you to make that kind of connection in your writing. When I started teaching, I was only 18 years old, and I was asked to take a class of children who were struggling. It was called an opportunity grade, and none of them could read. And uh, the education department sent out some experts from the psychology branch to have a look at me, and I, I knew they were extremely shocked to find someone just out of college and only 18, and no special training was given this class. And uh, as they left, I, I knew they were shocked and disappointed. And they, one of them said, if you can find a book that every child wants to read and can read, you'll have done something. And that really set me on, really, for the rest of my life, on the, the, the path that I was to go on. Firstly, uh, working with children in various areas of special education, then lecturing as training teachers, and that was my area. Also, even when I was a speech pathologist, I trained to be a speech pathologist, and, uh, of course, language is a very important part of the work there. And... Uh, so always this challenge to get children reading, to get them like books, and uh, then eventually, of course, after 30 years, really, I suddenly gave it, decided to give it a go because I, I found it very difficult to find the right thing there for children who, who had a struggle. And uh, I did write a couple of them myself, and then I realised that they just weren't cutting it. They looked like thin little books, and they they said, "I don't know how to read. I've got book like, a book like the little kids," and so the children avoided them. And uh, that's where I did a bit of research. And one of the things was a short story gives a, ch a child a reward very quickly. So so I went for that, and uh, then I was into it. I was aware I was doing something different. And when I sent my manuscripts to six different publishers, I got four rejections. And then the uh, fifth one, which Penguin Books at the time, said we quite liked these stories. The, the other publishers said they were off the wall or <laughs> that, that, that they were too confronting or uh, undermining. So uh, I had a go and the book went out there. I never saw it in shops. Uh, my own kids would go in and put it in front of 
where they did see it in front of someone else's books, like a Morris Gleisman maybe. <laughs> and um, for a year I really didn't get much feedback and then suddenly I started getting letters from children and uh, mm. suddenly they went bananas and I was on the bestseller list. So I, I realised I was doing something there and, uh, of course, I was thrilled about it. That's really interesting uh, to hear that. And we still, you know, we still need those stories i think that children don't feel they're being talked down to but they can access and they're motivating but i'm going to we're going to be talking mainly about three uh, books that you've published relatively recently here in the uk by old barn books which started with a different dog a different boy and a different land now, like the earliest stories that we talked about, they are also short, but they're very different in their tone. Now, a little while ago, I was talking to another writer and she talked not about writing for children, uh, but she used the phrase writing into childhood. And when I was reading these books, I kind of got that feeling that you were also writing into childhood. Is that a phrase that resonates with you? Yes, I, I, that, that resonates very much with me. And I've always said the boy in the story is always me. And uh, that's how I feel when I, when I write. And I, I do think once, you, once I get in front of the keyboard or writing my ideas book, you just suddenly are transported back and you do feel like it. you're a child again. And, and I do... You know, people will say to me, Paul, you know, you're 78. One little boy wrote to me and said, Dear Paul Jennings, how come you know what it's like to be me? And I was very touched by that. I thought that's one of the nice letters I've had. And uh, what happens really, even though there's the years, so many years between me and the children now, they still feel the same inside as we used to. And they have a first day at school, they become embarrassed, they're lonely, uh, they want people to notice them, uh, they, they're worried about being left out. And so I like to just touch on those things. And even though most of my stories are funny, I do like to have an element in that sort of tugs at the heart, even in the funny stories. And I think the children do, it resonates with them. Mm, really interesting. I think of the three books, uh, we'll talk a little bit about humour because it does come through, even though in some respects these are more serious. I, I guess it's a matter of scale because in your funny books, you're actually dealing with serious themes and issues too. And in the serious books, there's humour coming through to sort of temper and add sort of other layers of response. So, I was very interested, for instance, in A Different Land. There's quite a lot of humour in this book, and yet it is quite dark in lots of ways, coming to a new land that should be paradise, but is actually hell on earth to begin with. It still has moments of great humour. I'm laughing out loud thinking of Christopher on the, the long drop toilet and the wall being taken down in front of him. That in itself is funny, but he then uses humour to diffuse the situation. Yes, that's a, that's a good device there for him. Um, I can't help smiling about that one too because 
that actually was based on a certain amount of truth. When we, we first came to Australia, I was six, and I, uh, I was in the Cubs, like the junior scouts, and we went on a camp, and they had one of those long drop toilets, and I was a very proper little English boy and uh, never seen such a horrible thing. And so for the whole week, I didn't go. Anyway, on the very last day, everyone was getting a in the bus and I was busting I just couldn't hold it anymore and it, it was surrounded by a um, canvas screen and they'd taken the screen down and I just had to go and sit on there with everyone in the bus looking at me and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it was mortifying but I turned it to good use in the in that book. Yeah so humour can be a sort of defence and a deflector at the end of the story, uh, of this story, we've gone straight to the third book here, but as what is a, a very in, inhospitable place to begin with becomes more hospitable, there's humour used again right at the end, but this time it does something very different. It sort of is about community and connecting everybody together. You know, they're laughing together. Yes, uh, that trio of books really uh, draws a lot on my experience and my family's experience of coming to Australia as migrants. In those days, it was five to six weeks on the boat. And if you ever did get the chance to phone home again, it was very expensive and very rarely done. And uh, my mother missed her mother and her sister and her friends in England terribly. It took her a long time to find a place over here. And my mother used to tell me how lonely she was. And I remember in state school, she said she had approached this lady uh, after school one day and uh, asked her for coffee and or tea, it would have been. And uh, this lady said, my social circle is full, you know, and my heart broke for her. There's nothing as a little boy you can do to cheer your mother up. And um, so that comes through my writing a lot. And, of course, as a little English boy, had a, a little English accent, and the, the, the boys would say, you talk funny. So I lost it like a flash, you know. I mean, nobody believes I was born in England after about a year and, my mother was very disappointed. She said, oh, you sound so common. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, just to perhaps put them into context in all three books, the titles, A, a Different Dog, Boy, Land. I was really interested in the use of the word different because it can mean so many different things. I mean, maybe I should just ask you, Paul, what the word different means to you? Well, two things come to mind. Um, one of the things I think for creative people is they like to do things differently. If you can say that you've come up with something different that hasn't been done before, to me that's a really high compliment. And I do think I've always thought that. And I think the other meaning of the word also underlies most of my writing it's nearly always about the person who feels different and is the observer and 
feels a little bit on the edge of the mob and not quite one of the gang. And um, I think as a child I was very much the observer and I, I was for a long time very, very shy and felt different. And, of course, as a migrant you feel different too. So I, I guess that's a bit of an exploration of the word and I was very happy when I had hit on that for a little series of books. Mm, yeah. I was interested that in A Different Dog, the boy has elective mutism because he's had a trauma in his life. That must have been something that you came across a lot in your work as a speech pathologist. Yes, that's right. And although I didn't name it, he also has a little bit of a stutter and he gets a, a block when he when he speaks. And, uh, of course, the dog in the story has uh, a certain problem with words for the receptive nature. So, and the speech pathology has uh, definitely affected my writing. And one of my early stories, I, I did write a, a story about a boy with a stutter, and um, I thought it was a good story, but then it just occurred to me, if the teacher's reading this out, and if anybody in the class does have a stutter, they'll look around at him and he'll feel really embarrassed. And I remember thinking, that's a really funny story, not laughing at the boy with the saddle, but laughing at the complexity of something that was going on. So I thought, what else can I think of? I've got to think of a speech disorder. There's no such thing. So I worked out quite well because I invented a boy who at the end of every sentence had to say the the phrase without my shirt. So, you know, say I'm just going to see the head teacher without a shirt, without a shirt. And uh, everybody would laugh at him. Once again, he's sort of the person who stands out and is different and they're laughing at him. And uh, that story worked very well. And when I read it into the TV series, I thought, oh, I'll go a bit further this time. I was a bit more confident, so I had the boy in the story say, without my pants. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so oh. every time he finished the sentence, you know, can I please leave the room, sir, without my pants, you know. So the speech therapy, uh, you know, everything you do sort of involves mm-hmm. your writing, and I was very pleased to get an award from the Speech Pathologists Association over here a long time ago. Wonderful. I'm used to reading stories of yours that are, I think, mainly first-person narration, or a lot of them are first-person narration. Mm. This one isn't. Um, It's third-person, but so closely focalised through the eyes of the boy in the story, who you never name. He's always called the boy. Yes, I finally came to the conclusion that those short stories, I've written about 100 of them, are funny ones, and I get into trouble for saying this, but I sort of thought I don't think the world needs any more of them, like hundreds, a lot to choose from. Uh, And I would like to do something a little bit more serious. And um, I've got a feeling that this might have been influenced by a book I always loved from a very early age, probably the first adult book, really, I ever read, which was The Old Man and the Sea, you know, Hemingway's mm-hmm. book. And I don't think he's named in that, is he? The, 
the old man. He was always the old man. Mm. And I think that might have influenced me, actually. Interesting. And some of those things are so deeply in the subconscious. We don't exactly know why we've done them, but that's such an interesting uh, connection. Of course, sea and water and drowning are very much a part of one of the things that runs through all three books, death, drowning, war, shooting. Well, you know, my my childhood in England, it was only six years, but it's very strongly in me. And I grew up in an English family in Australia and everything was about Britain my parents talked about, particularly my father. And, of course, they always called it home, was always home, even when they'd been here 40 years. My parents lived in uh, Middlesex, and during the war they lived opposite what was then called Heston Aerodrome, mm-hmm. and uh, they had all the stories of the bombing and shoveling incendiary bombs out the window and the deprivations of the war, and that was so strong in their psyche and it was very strong in mine. It sort of uh, was a world of danger and uncertainty, wasn't it? And uh, I grew up loving the British war movies and uh, so did my father, you know, things like The Cruel Sea and so on. And uh, so I think it gives you a certain feeling of uncertainty and not being safe and for other reasons relating to perhaps my father. I I think in my childhood I never really felt safe and uh, maybe that reflects in my writing. The other thing that struck me reading it now where we have a different kind of migration uh, going on, not so much the sort of economic migration, but people fleeing uh, dangerous places. I felt the sort of resonance with that as I was reading about this idea of being put into the migrant camp. When you were writing it, did you have any connection like that in mind or was it just about memory? Well, I have very strong feelings um, about the way the migrants are treated by this country and you know that it's a very sad thing you know there are still people locked up after being here for eight or nine years and I love this country it's like I love England too and we do have things to be proud of but that's not one of them and I was a migrant everybody except the Aborigines comes from somewhere else and uh you know, my father proudly said, if you're English, when you get here, you're Australian, and that's all there is to it. And, of course, we were fortunate as English migrants because we had the same king and we had the same language. Whereas the, a lot of the migrants are coming now, they don't have the language. They are from very many different races, and uh, they're coming to escape the terrible things that have been happening in their own lands. And, you know, we were coming for a better life, but uh, 
to answer your question, yes, the migrant thing, very big in my mind, and uh, it's not something we've handled well. Mm-hmm. I did want to ask you about the three books and whether at the beginning you'd seen them as a trio or whether you just wrote one after the other without knowing that it was going to be this set of books. And the reason that I'm asking is that they just seem so perfectly crafted as a trio of books. You know, the sort of revisiting, we start with a dog and the dog is there in the final story as well. It just seems to be some thinking about the patterning that goes on across the three books. To be honest, I I did only see the one book and I'd always wanted to do a novella. I, I like novellas, but publishers don't like them very much because they're not a novel with a lot of pages and then not a short story. And I'd always wanted to do a novella and I was wanting to write a book that would move people more I mean, a lot of my short stories do. Some of them make you, I know, make people cry. But uh, on this, I, I wanted to do a novella and I did want to do the migrant thing, but I started with the different dog and the boy and his mother. And then when I'd finished it, people liked it. And I thought, oh, I think I'll do some more of these. And also then I did the second one a different boy, and it was on the boat coming out here. And my editor, Julie Watts, she's been my editor now for 35 years. She was there on the day that I first went to Penguin. Yeah, I showed them my short stories. And um, she said to me, I want to know what happens to that family ball. They've gone through some tragedies and some terrible things, and it and surprising and wonderful things happen to them, but they're these poor people, you know, the boy from a boar school uh, running away, the orphan, and the mother who's had some terrible tragedies. And uh, she said, I've just got to know what happened. Tell us. So a lot of what happened, as I already explained, was biographical in there, but I thought, I think I'll take them up to Queensland in the rainforest and back in the day, it was really rough and, you know, the wild pigs and crocodiles and the splendour of the rainforest and the parrots and uh, the real Aussie rough way. And I did actually go to a pub out there in the outback, which had dirt floor and, you know, guys in shorts and bare feet and drinking beer and... Um, I thought, well, that's a genuine part of here and rather than go to the suburbs, I'll take them up there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and it's good. Uh, As I said earlier, uh, the promised land or paradise, I think it says the world was a bleak place. Uh, Death and destruction could strike at any time. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Paul, it's uh, wonderful to talk to you today and uh, I'm looking forward to a further conversation with a live audience uh, later uh, in the year. Thank you so much for discussing your books with me today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. I look forward to our next talk. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. 
To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.